Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Let me invite you to grab your copy of God's Word and open with me to 1 Samuel. This morning we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 9, all the way through chapter 10, verses 16. I'm excited to preach God's Word this morning. I've been pouring over this passage all week, wrestling through it, struggling through it. I hope that it encourages you and convicts you and focuses us on Jesus and encourages us to live for His glory and have Him as our King and Lord. Uh, we want to be a church that is about the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, teaching the Bible. So let me encourage you, if, uh, I, I pray and hope that this is not the only meal that you have in the week, uh, this, this time together with the church as we gather together to hear God's Word taught. I pray this might be a longer, uh, a longer meal, uh, maybe a larger meal, but I pray this is not the only meal that you partake in, uh, feasting upon God's word and taking God's word in. Uh, I think God's word is vital. Jesus said that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I, I pray that, that this is just a, a propels you into the week and that every week you center yourself in God's word. Uh, I would love to help you study the Bible if you don't know how to do that or you want to know where do I start, or maybe you want an accountability partner. I know myself and Will and Nathan, the elders of the church, we want to equip you to be students of God's Word, to love God, to study the Scriptures, to be people of the Word, to be a church who values the Word. If you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. So let's, let's get in now to our passage. It's a longer passage than what I've been uh, going over the last couple of weeks. So let's uh, settle in, get comfortable, attune our minds and our ears to the Word, and my plan is to read through the passage, provide a brief commentary on certain key historical and cultural elements, and then look at those three questions that we've been seeking to answer each week. Uh, as we get into chapter 9, it seems like the story maybe shifts gears a little bit. It seems like out of the blue, all of a sudden we're hearing about this man from Benjamin, he's lost some donkeys, what's that about? Uh, but remember, at the end of chapter 8, we just came out of uh, the people had asked God or asked Samuel to appoint a king over them. And they said, we want to be like all the other nations. Samuel, appoint a king to rule over us. And this, this displeases Samuel. He doesn't like it. Literal phrasing is it's evil in his sight. But he goes before the Lord and God says, obey the people, give them a king. And that's how the, the chapter ends as well in chapter 8, verses 22. The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So that's where the story leaves off. And it's building the anticipation of, okay, who's this king going to be? And how is that going to come into play? And that's where chapter 9 comes in in verse 1. There's a man from Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharoth, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now that's a phrase that does not mean uh, Saul had giraffe-esque qualities. He did not have a super long neck. The phrase simply meant that he was, most people's heads probably only came to his shoulders. That makes sense? He was a tall guy. Right? And notice how much, how much uh, description is given to his physical appearance. Right? He's a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. And, and if you hang out you have a friend who's a tall person, or, or maybe you're a tall person, you know, you know when you're around them, like, that's something that is recognizable, 
right? And, and oftentimes, I have one, there's one particular friend that I've hung out only what, maybe two or three times, and every time around him, it's just like a matter of time before someone meets him and then goes, wow, how tall are you, you know? I don't know what that's like because I'm below average probably, but <laughs> I can imagine what it would have been like for Saul if he would have been in the NBA, right? How many people say, hey, Saul, you play basketball? It's like, no, I don't. Like, I'm just trying to find these donkeys. But this, this is the interesting point that the narrator's making about all the descriptions that's given to his physical appearance. This was a man who, if you looked at, you would think, this might be a good candidate for a king. He's handsome, comes from a wealthy family, he's tall, right? Like, what else do you need? You know what I mean? A lot more, a lot more, Margo. There's a lot more that we need. Verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shaliah, Shaliasha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalem, and they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to Zaph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Now, Zeph would have been a long ways away from Saul's home. This would have been about five miles north. So this is a long trek. But these donkeys have gone a long ways away. And, and Saul's gotten to a point where he's about ready to give up. That's what he says to his servant. Uh, I mean, are the don- I don't know how expensive donkeys would have been, but are the donkeys worth it? I mean, the father's going to start to worry about me and, and no longer about the donkeys. But the servant says, Behold, There is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Interesting again, the the emphasis on on Saul's physical appearance, and in this distance, it's not Saul who has the idea to go seek help from a man of God. It's the servant. That's an interesting point. And, And the servant says, he's a man who's held in honor. All that he says comes true. And this would have been a sign that he was, in fact, a prophet. In fact, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, verses 21 through 22, it says this, And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Meaning, how do you identify a false prophet? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, then that word that the Lord, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. So you can tell if someone's a prophet or not, does what they say come true? Saul, excuse me, Samuel, what he says comes true. Therefore, this is a man of God. This is a sign. Hey, let's go seek. This guy's a man of God. He, maybe he can help us. Maybe he knows where the donkeys have gone or can provide some counsel, some spiritual direction about where we should look. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And as I was studying this, there's kind of two different ways that commentaries would go with it. One, they would say, well... Uh, in this ancient times, gift-giving was a big deal. So giving gifts to a prophet or to a seer, that was just a customary thing. But others would take it as far as there was, a, there was a ancient historian, a first century historian named Josephus, who said this was a sign that Saul was ignorant of spiritual realities because prophets and seers did not give guidance and counsel and prophecy for a reward. That's not what they did. And in fact, in the rest of the Bible and the rest of, of the scriptures and kings... When gifts are tried to give to prophets and, and people try to pay them, it's refused. 
And when prophets do accept rewards, it doesn't go well. So this might be another instance that's kind of subtly hinting at Saul, his character, his spirituality, and the trajectory that we will see in the kingdom that we will talk about next week and we'll see in the following weeks after that in chapters 11 and 12. But they, they say, let's go see Samuel. This is a man of God. Perhaps he can tell us the way to go. Saul says, we don't have anything that we can bring the man. But the servant answers Saul in verse 8. Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel, be a small piece of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to a choir of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And that's, that's simply a side note and a sidebar describing the, the synonymous terms of prophet and seer and how they were used at different points in Israel's history. And Saul said to the servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. So they're, they're making the way towards Samuel. They've gotten guidance from these women where Samuel is. They're going to go meet him before he comes down and, and eats. They've got to catch him in this, in this time frame. And from this, now the story, the scene shifts to uh, Samuel. It's kind of a, a flashback of something that happened previously. In verse 15, it says, Now the day before Saul came... The Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Uh, the word prince here is, is another word for ruler. Uh, it might be God's way of indicating that that. Uh, the people that he appoints and he anoints are under his sovereignty and under his rule and under his kingship. In other words, uh, it's, it's a subtle way of saying that although the people have asked for a king, God is not going to abdicate his kingship over the people. He's still going to be sovereign. He's still going to ultimately be in charge. And he's going to appoint a prince or a ruler. And this is preparing what we will see next week as Saul is appointed as king. Says, I have seen my people because their cry has come to me, and, and Saul will be anointed. And anointing was, was a process of, of appointing someone. Priests were anointed, other kings were anointed later uh, for the service or the role. That was like the, the ordination or the initiation into that task. Verse 17. And now the story flashed back to the present time where the, the narrator is continuing. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Samuel, Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? This might be another subtle reference that Saul is kind of dull, spiritually calloused. It seems like the servant knows about Samuel. The servant of Saul knows about Samuel. Other people know about Samuel, where he is, what he looks like. But Saul asked Samuel where the seer is, showing he doesn't know who Samuel is, Right? Now, that might, be, that might be subtle, but it might be the way the narrator is trying to, to show us and preparing us, foreshadowing the type of king that Saul will be. He says, tell me, is this the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. 
Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. Now, I can imagine Saul at this point thinking, look, man, I'm just trying to find my donkeys, right? Like, do you need to tell me all this on my mind? That's not really what I'm asking for. But Samuel has something different in store for Saul. So that's for your donkeys that were lost three days ago. Do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Now, when you first read that, it can be a little bit confusing because of how the, the wording is. For whom, I mean, I don't, I don't, maybe if I was more intelligent and uh, educated, I might talk in this more proper way. For whom is to be desired? But, but Samuel is, is either saying two things. One, uh, all of Israel has asked for a king. And, and you are the king that they are ask, desiring, they're looking for. Or it could mean, listen, all the stuff that's in Israel, the tax, the best land, the servants, the best food, this is all going to be yours. But either way, whatever, whatever exactly is the meaning here, Samuel is telling Saul, you are the anointed one. You are the king. And Saul answers, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought him into the hall and gave him a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, for which I said, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and, and what, was set, what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you, eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. Now, the leg would have been a, a choice portion, a large portion of meat. So, so Saul's getting the good stuff. And he, he knows that this was a, like he was expecting him. It says the, the hour was appointed that you might eat with the guests. This was, this was a plan that, that was coming into fruition. And says, so Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Now for us, if a guest would come to your house and you say, hey, I put a bed up on the roof, that would be a little odd and maybe not hospitable. Uh, but in, in the ancient times, their roofs were flat. They were in, in warmer climates. So to put someone on the roof was a very nice place to be. Uh, in the, in, at night, there would be cool breezes that would come by that would cool you off. So, th- so Samuel's not giving Saul, like, a, you know, why don't you sleep in my garage or you can crash in my car. He's giving him a nice place to sleep. And at the break of dawn, Samuel said to Saul, up, I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, both he and Samuel went out into the street. Now as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he had passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I might make known to you the word of God. So Samuel wants to get a, a, a one-on-one conversation and moment here with Saul, so he tells his servant to go on. Chapter 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head. So it would be the anointing that was referenced earlier. He's anointing him to be prince over the people of Israel. And it says, he also says he kissed him, which would be a sign of, of loyalty, demonstration that he is the king. And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has appointed you to be prince over his heritage. And Samuel's about to give him three signs. 
that will come true that demonstrate Saul is in fact chosen, he will be the king, and God is with him. Verse 2, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin, Alzelza. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go up on, excuse me, then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. And after that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim. And there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, fruit, fruit, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now these signs, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Now these are pretty specific things that Samuel is giving Saul, aren't they? You will meet three men carrying three young goats, carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. You're going to get two loaves of bread from them. When you come to Gibeah, there's a garrison. You're going to meet some prophets who are going to have musical instruments. And then the Spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon you, and you're going to prophesy and be turned into another man. I mean, what's going on here? Remember, these are all signs demonstrating that, that Saul is chosen, that he's going to be the appointed king. And, and this is a phrase that's similar to a phrase that we saw when we went through Judges, where the Spirit of the Lord is described uh, as rushing upon Samson. Remember that? The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson, and he has this mighty strength. He rips uh, a lion like you'd rip a young goat. Do you remember the story? And he's empowered with this special power for this task. And this, this is what is happening in this moment uh, in, in 1 Samuel. I don't think it's describing the same realities that we might find in the New Testament, talking about the Holy Spirit empowering us and coming uh, to, to dwell in us and to empower us and be with us forever. Uh, the Spirit in the Old Testament was, was given and for specific tasks and jobs. So uh, later when, when the Spirit leaves Saul, we shouldn't get disoriented like, oh, will the Spirit ever leave us? It's, it's, different in God's, it's a different period in God's redemptive history. Does that make sense? So we shouldn't think about this in a, in a conversion sense or in a new birth sense or how Jesus talks about how we must be born again by water and the Spirit or the Spirit coming to, uh, to change us and make us a new creation. This is, this is a, a sign that is given to Saul saying that this is proof that God has po- appointed you to be king. Does that make sense? Where was I? Verse 8. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to offer peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Notice how quickly what Samuel's words are coming into fruition to Saul. God's words through Samuel are coming true. And when all knew him previously, saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? 
And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul among the prophets? Now, again, there's a couple of different uh, ways that, that over the, over the, the years, uh, commentators have taken what this phrase might exactly mean. One thing we know is that Saul probably did not prophesy often. Because he's back in his hometown of Gibeah, a group of prophets are coming down, uh, and he starts just joining them and prophesying with them. The Spirit rushes upon them. This is kind of be a shocking thing. And this, this shows, this is demonstrated in the way that people respond to Saul, saying, hey, we know this guy. Isn't this the son of Kish? And, and even that idea of Saul kind of acting out of his character, like he's starting to prophesy, he's, he's with the prophets, that becomes like a proverbial saying in the time. It becomes a proverb. Like, is Saul among the prophets? Like if someone acts out of character, like imagine a, a very quiet, reserved person, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, just becomes a life of the party and they're talking with everyone and they're, they're just crazy. That's what he would say, is Saul among the prophets? And that's the way that the, the phrase would use. It's, it's used to describe how this was so out of the ordinary for Saul. This is something that he didn't normally do. And they ask, and who is their father? Uh, and this is, this is a phrase that, could, that can mean a couple things. Father is used in the book of 2 Kings to be a term of leadership. It's used of the leader of the prophets. So it could kind of be a condescending, con, condescending way of saying, okay, who's the leader of this prophets? They let, let a guy named Saul in amongst their midst, and he's prophesying with them. That could be one way that it's taken. Like, <laughs> how could they let someone like Saul prophesy with them? Another way is saying that uh, since the spiritual climate of Israel is so terrible, at certain points in Israel's history, prophets were not viewed in a very good way. Prophets uh, in 2 Kings are described as madmen. So for Saul to be hanging out with prophets was, was not a good thing. Like Saul was a man of wealth. He was a man who came from a family of significance. Uh, it, wasn't, it wouldn't be a good thing for him to be hanging out with the prophets. Right, whatever the case may mean, Saul was not acting his normal self here. That's what we can agree on. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, and he prophesies with the prophets, and it surprises the people. And then in verse 13, when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. And Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when they were not found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Samuel said to his uncle, he told us plainly about the donkeys, that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now, this is left a little bit mysterious and puzzling. Why did Samuel or Saul not tell his uncle? Was this a, a way of kind of, he wanted to be humble? Maybe he didn't think his family would understand or accept the reality that now he's, he's been appointed king in a secret ceremony, he's been anointed. Maybe it was, it's another instance describing kind of Saul's uh, lack of confidence in God, lack of confidence that, that this is actually, this is true and this is happening. He's not leaning into that calling or to that task or to that role. Text doesn't tell us. And, and we'll learn more about Saul uh, in the coming weeks. But for now, that's where we're going to, that's where our passage ends this morning. Next week, we'll look at Saul being proclaimed as king, but, but this week we're looking at his anointing and him being chosen. And we want to reflect upon those questions that we see in our handout that we'll see up on the screen to get us to think about what can we learn from this passage? And, and how does this passage connect to the larger story of the Bible? And what does this passage, 
what kind of exhortation or admonition does this passage have for us? What is it calling us to do or not to do? There's a lot in here, isn't there? There's a lot that happens. But there's some clear themes and truths that we see traced through the story. And, and that's why I want to highlight, as we look at question one, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? Uh, this story demonstrates, one, God's word is true, and it comes, it's, it's trustworthy. What God says happens. We see this through Samuel's words. We see this in, in God's sovereignty in appointing a king. It's not up to the people right? Even though the people asked Samuel last chapter, hey, Samuel, appoint for us a king that we may be like all the nations. It's God, the one who is initiating, right? We see that God is the one who hears the cry of the people. God is the one who reveals to Samuel who the king will be. God is the one who chooses Saul. God is the one who empowers Saul. All of, the, all of that wording and that language is, is highlighting the sovereignty, the initiation, the kindness, the trustworthiness of God's word. Sovereignty in the sense that all that takes place, all that comes into the story, God orchestrated. God speaking through Samuel, all that comes to pass. And notice all the instances of grace, God's initiating kindness, as God is the one who initiates. It's, it's crazy to me that just in the chapter previously, 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people reject God as king. And God tells Samuel, obey their voice and give them a king. And yet God is still the one who hears the cry of his people and appoints a king to save them for their enemies. J.R. Vinoy in the Cornerstone Commentary says it like this. In spite of the people's wrong motives, in spite of the people had rejected as king previously, God still hears the cries of his people and moves to rescue them. What the people had wanted for wrong reasons, God in his mercy would employ for their good. It was the Lord's purpose for Saul to rescue the Israelites from their Philistine oppressors. The story highlights God is the one who hears, God's the one who acts, God's the one who initiates, God's the one who pursues, God is the one who is in control. And even though the people had rejected God as king, they want a human king to rule over them. God does not abdicate or forfeit his sovereignty over his people. And he's going to use even wrong motives and wrong requests to employ for their good. It's the Lord's purpose who stands. And we see how does this story connect to the larger story of the Bible as we move to that next question, question two, and examine uh, how this fits into the, the grand narrative of the scriptures. We see that God hearing the cries of his people, God initiating to save them, God's sovereignty and appointing kings, God's revealing and his word coming true, all points forward, and it's in line with the whole scriptures. God's word comes true. God doesn't speak something that doesn't come to pass. God doesn't lie. His word is not questionable on, can we rely on it? Give me some sort of security. God's word is trustworthy and secure, and it foreshadows and points forward to a time when God would appoint another king, the greatest king, a better king, a king who would save God's people from their enemies. Although God appoints a ruler in this story to save Israel from their enemies, the Philistines, in this story, one day God would appoint a ruler and a king and a prince who would save his people from their greatest enemy, 
the enemy of sin and Satan and death, their own rebellious hearts and their captivity to their self-centeredness. We see that although Saul was obedient to his father in searching for and seeking the lost donkeys, Jesus came at obeying his father perfectly and he came and was sent to save and seek the lost sheep of Israel. All those who God had predestined before the foundation of the world, those whom he foreknew and foreloved and those he elected, those who would be justified, God sent Jesus to move and to save them for his glory. And Jesus was the ultimate anointed one. That's what Christ means, anointed one. Christ is not Jesus' last name. The title referring to, he's the fact that he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is going to save his people. We see that although Saul was placed and set at the head of the table, in this story, Jesus is set and placed at the head of all things in the gospel. Jesus is the one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created. All things were made by him and for him. He is the head of all creation. He is what holds all things together. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the great king that this story points forward to. God appoints a ruler for his people in this story, but one day God would send the king of kings the Lord of Lords, to move and rescue his people. And although all people have rejected God's kingship, God moves in grace to save his people from their enemies. Jesus was promised and prophesied all throughout the scriptures. The events in his life have been promised by God's prophets. His life was planned and predestined and ordained by God. And this story connects to the appointing of Jesus as king, but it also points forward to a time when the Spirit would be poured out on God's people and they would be changed. I know we talked about earlier in this moment that, that in this moment here, it's not talking about conversion, it's not talking about new birth, it's not talking about those realities, but this story points forward to a time when that would be a reality. When the Spirit would rush upon someone and change them. They would turn into a new person. They would give a new heart. In Acts, those who were chosen by God were anointed and empowered with the Holy Spirit. They prophesied. They changed dramatically. They went out into the streets and started talking about Jesus and proclaiming the gospel, and people thought they were drunk. The Spirit changed and transforms a group of people who were scared and hiding in a room, worried that their Messiah had been killed. He's left, and what do we have now? And the Spirit comes and transforms them into a group of bold disciples who lay their lives down for the sake of the gospel, suffering all kinds of heartache and persecution and death for the sake of Jesus. The Spirit is transformative. The Spirit begins to go out in waves from Jews even to Gentiles in the book of Acts. The Spirit is poured out and people prophesy and, and speak in tongues, and these are, these are signs that God has poured out his spirit and that God is with his people, just like it was with Saul. This is what happens when the spirit rushes upon someone. They changed. This is what happens to a guy named Saul. He is on his way. He is a persecutor of the church, a hater of Christianity, a hater of Jesus. And God reveals Jesus to him, changes his heart. The spirit comes upon him and his life does a 180. He goes from advancing the faith that he once tried to end he goes from being bold for Jesus and suffering on his behalf instead of persecuting the ones who uh, follow Jesus. He becomes someone who is persecuted for following Jesus. 
The anointing in the story and the empowering presence of the Spirit in the story foreshadows a time when all of God's people would be anointed and empowered with the Spirit. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.21, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and He has anointed us, and He has put a seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So we see in the story, God is the one. His word is trustworthy and true. It's, it's initiating. It's pursuing. It's sovereign. We see that this points forward to the anointing of the greatest king, the ultimate king, Jesus, and the outpouring of his spirit that would transform all of his people. And lastly, we want to look at what exhortation or admonition does this story offer? What is this story calling us to do or not to do? When you read a story like this and you think, what do I make, how do I make sense of this? Am I supposed to seek a seer when I lose my donkeys? Haven't had that happen. Am I supposed to pray for the Holy Spirit to rush upon me so that I can prophesy and amaze other prophets that I've never done before? Am I supposed to get, give a little silver to my pastor so good things will happen? Am I supposed to be like Samuel and seek these great visions and revelations and specific words from God? In light of what we see in the story, in the trustworthiness of God's word, and his sovereign initiating kindness, I think this story calls us to revel in his kindness, revel in his great mercy and grace, and rest in his word. Revel in his grace and rest in his word. Revel is a word uh, that means to take great pleasure. If you revel in something, you're not just pleased or even excited, you're overwhelmed with joy. And imagine what it would have been like for Saul. Right? Here's a man who is trying to be obedient to his father. His fa- the donkeys have been lost. He's going after searching for these donkeys. And it seems like it's this kind of random happenstance of events. Seems like a coincidence. He, he comes across this prophet And instead of finding out where his donkeys are, he's appointed as king. He's brought into the the seer's kind of place of honor. He's placed at the head of the table. He's given the choice of meat. Imagine how that would have been like for Saul. You just think you're going throughout your day looking for some donkeys, and then you become king. And you think about the reality that God's people had rejected him as king. And it would have been, I think, within every right for God to say, you guys are on your own. I'm done with you. You've rejected me again and again and again. I've given you judges. You didn't listen to them. I appointed another judge. You didn't listen to them. Every time the judge passed away, you'd go back to your rebellious ways. I've given you Samuel, who has led you to repentance and led you back to trust in God. I've thundered from the heavens and confused your enemies. And then you've kind of cleaned up. You've come in behind me and I've done the heavy lifting and you just get to walk behind and and get the victory. And then you reject me as king. Wouldn't God have every right to say, I'm going to find a new people. I'm done with this rebellious and these stubborn, these hard-hearted people. But God still hears the cry of his people, and he still says, I will appoint a prince over my inheritance, and he will save them from the hand of the Philistines. Saul would have been foolish, I think, if he came back from this this experience, this story, came back and told his friends, guys, 
just had this great idea. I'm going to become the next king. The Spirit's going to come upon me. I'm going to say this prayer. I'm going to walk this aisle, and the Spirit's going to come upon me, and then I'm going to prophesy, and I'm going to show how spiritual and holy I am. And then, and then I'm going to like amaze people with how spiritual I am. That's not what happens. God appoints, God moves, God empowers. And it's all by his grace. Now, if that doesn't humble us, I think we have some serious pride and outworkings of our heart that need to be addressed, some reorienting that needs to happen. Because if we think that God chose us and anointed us and we have this spirit because we're spiritually better than other people, because I'm, I'm morally superior, or I made the right decision, I made the logical choice. I mean, believing in God just makes sense. The only reason that we are God's people, that we have his spirit, that we have been chosen by him is simply because of him and his glory. And that should lead to a great humility in us. There is nothing special about us, nothing superior to other people that would make us worthy of his affection and his anointing and his choosing. There's nothing that we did to deserve the great gift of the spirit. It is all an act of God's grace and this passage is calling us to revel in that truth, that God has heard and seen our misery. He has sent Jesus to purchase a new life for us. He has sent Jesus to be our substitute, to die in our place. He has sent the Spirit in our life to apply that reality and convict us of our rebellious and hard-hearted ways. If God did not intervene and interact in our life, we would be destined and ignorant of our ways leading to sin and to hell and death, eternally giving the finger to God and being happy with our choice. Yet God did not, he did not leave us in our helpless condition. He sent Jesus to die for us. He called us. And this is the, the beholding the beautiful glory of God's grace. Revel in the God who loves sinners like us with a pure and sheer and free grace. The story calls us to bless and praise his name that according to his sovereign plan, according to the purpose of his will, according to the praise of his glorious grace, as Ephesians says, he chose us in Jesus that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he has predestined us for adoption as children in him. Praise him that in Jesus we have obtained an inheritance. We have gotten far better than we have ever deserved. Praise him that if you're in Christ, you've been given the spirit of God, the sign that God is with us. The spirit who opened our eyes to see God for who he is. The spirit who convicted our hearts of sin and gives us the gift of repentance and faith and points us continually to Jesus. The spirit who helps us understand the Bible and understand the message of the gospel. The spirit who transforms our lives to be more holy and pure and like Christ. The spirit who makes us new creations and gives us new desires that we never had. The spirit who helps us grow in hospitality and generosity and gifts of the spirit. All of these are signs that God is with us and that he's in us. And as we think about these things, friends, I, I hope our hearts go and our lips move 
to the realities that God alone deserves all the credit and the honor. These realities should lead us to worship that he has initiated, he has moved, he has gracious, and my response, my proper response, is to worship him and to thank him, to praise him. So revel in the great kindness of God. Secondly, let's rest in God's word. The story clearly shows us that God's word is true and trustworthy, that what he says comes to pass. It does not change or fail. We can bank our lives on God's word. I want to be clear, friends, as mentioned earlier, similar to how the Spirit is described rushing upon Saul and, and how I think that's different than how the Spirit is described as coming upon us in the New Testament. Those, those are different ideas um, versus what happens to Saul and the realities of the new birth. Uh, similarly, the ways that God speaks are also different in different periods of revelation. There are different periods of the ways in which God has spoken. For example, in Saul's day, God would speak through the prophets. So you wanted to hear from God? You go to the prophet, you go to the seer. The prophet would speak on behalf of God. But in, in our days, in the last days, as the author of Hebrews says it like this, the Bible is our final word. Jesus is the final word. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You see, and, and see how he contrasts this. But in these last days, so not long ago, not many times and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he has also created the world. So you see the contrast of periods there, right? Does that make sense? That means that since God has fully and finally spoken in Jesus, and since the New Testament has been formed and canonized, and affirmed by the church, and the New Testament, which describes Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, and implications of what that means, and how God's people are to live in light of that, and, and how he is going to come again, as the book of Revelation says. Since the New Testament has told us all we need to know about Jesus, Scripture is now complete. Meaning there's, there's no author or no person who gets to say, hey guys, I, I received this special revelation from God, and I'm going to write this book that that's new, that tells us more things we need to know about God. That's false. Jesus is the final word. All that we have in the New Testament is God's final word. The scripture is now complete. This means if we want to hear from God, we don't bring silver to a seer to tell us what God wants from us. We open this book. This is God's word to us. This is what God has spoken to us. And we should be leery of people who say, God's, God has told me, and, and then they don't follow it with a Bible verse. The Bible is God's word. The scriptures are the true authoritative words of God that we can bank and rest our lives on. And we must ask ourselves if God's word is like this. If God's word is completely true and completely trustworthy, what he says happens. We, we saw that all throughout this story. Do our hearts and does our trust and does our life reflect that reality? Are we committed to this? Do we wake up with the resolution and the conviction, without this, I don't live? I need this more than I need my breakfast.
Friends, this is God's word. It's God's God gift to us. So it shows us, it's the lamp to our feet. It shows us what God wants from us, his will and his word. It gives great joy and hope and life as we study it and cherish it and obey it and do what it says. Friends, we live in a great time where we, we're, not, we're not limited to, to just hearing from one guy. I don't have any kind of special access to God that you don't have. We have all been, if we have a phone, if, we, if you have a library card, if you have anything, you can get access to a Bible. I mean, this is an awesome time that we live in, isn't it? How many translations can you just pull up on your phone alone? I think I could pull up like 20. You want to speak up different languages? You want to learn languages as you read the Bible? You can do, man, you can just do about anything. In a time of great access and opportunity, does that reflect in, in our commitment and our love for it? I hope so. I hope that this passage encourages us not only to, to revel in God's grace and his kindness, but to rest in his scriptures and to commit ourselves to his word. You don't have to trust a feeling or catchy idioms on Facebook or Twitter to hear from God. You can come to him straight in his word. So friends, in light of these realities, that he is with us, that he has given us his word, let's pray that we would be a church that does not become prideful in our thinking, that rests in the grace of God, that rests in God's word, and we become increasingly committed to God's word, to memorizing it, to meditating on it, to encouraging one another with it, to reading it together, all for God's glory and for his honor and for his credit. Let's pray. Father, may your word be that lamp to our feet. We are in darkness apart from your word. Father, may your word be what we store up in our heart. May your word be the testimonies that we delight in. And God, I ask, Father of glory, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. That we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That we would know what is the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus, you are far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And you are above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. God, you have put all things under Jesus' feet and you have given him as our head. Jesus, you are the head of our church. We are your body. Fill us and be all in all. We want to submit to your lordship and to your leadership. Help us to be a people who love you and obey you for your glory. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.